Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. For me, it's completely changed my mental strength to the point where it's almost created me. If I didn't have my condition, I wouldn't be who I am today. I wouldn't be as strong as I am today. And uh, so I'm pr- I've got to a point I'm proud of being who I am and proud of my condition and actually grateful of it. From the point of crying and being like, why am I like this? Why am I the chosen one? I'm now grateful that I am the chosen one mm. and that I've uh, been able to still achieve my goals even though it's been difficult. But that's all been down to the way my parents have brought me up, where my parents perceive my disability. And if they hadn't seen it as such a positive step, then I wouldn't be so strong mentally and where I am today. Welcome to another episode of The Gap. Speaking about the mantras that keep him moving forward, despite his disability, that was Nick Hamilton. Half-brother of Lewis Hamilton, Nick is a 28-year-old racing driver who was born with cerebral palsy. In this week's episode, he speaks to 54-year-old Paralympian, John Stubbs who survived an almost fatal road accident in 1989. Their conversation opens up discussions around accessibility for those living with disabilities, the impact being disabled has on their love lives and their coping mechanisms for everyday life. Hey. Hi, mate. How you doing? I'm John. Nick Houghton. Nice to meet you. How are you? Not bad. Yourself? Yeah, I'm good. All right. Your brother's doing well? Yeah. (laughs) So are you? Yeah, doing all right. Yeah. It's always hard work, but you've got to keep pushing forward, yeah. as always. Can I ask you specifically what your disability is? So I was born two months premature, diagnosed with uh, spastic diplegia, which is a form of cerebral palsy, and basically been affected from my waist downwards. My torso is pretty much perfect, apart from my right side is a lot weaker than most able-bodied people's weaker sides. Yeah. It affects my legs and my muscle growth and strength. So I have a lot of tight muscles. Standing and walking is difficult or used to be a lot more difficult than it is today. But yeah, that's pretty much generally what it is. Okay. As you can see, my disability is I'm a right leg above knee amputee, but I've also got left leg total paralysis below the knee. And I acquired this back in 1989 when I was 24. I had a motorbike accident and unfortunately I was left for dead. So, you know, I had four months in hospital and a lot of rehab. And was that uh, on the road? It was, I was commuting to and from work. Wow. You know, so it was a cold November Monday evening at six o'clock. Can you recite the accident itself? Yeah, but you know, it's quite harrowing remembering it, but I was, it was like five past six, just clocked off from work. Uh, I was on my way home. 
and I was just minding my own business, riding home, and there was a slight dog leg left corner, and the motorist completely misread the corner and just sideswiped me off. And then the, the rest really, for me, is history. And was it with the way you landed? Or was it the fact I was in a bad, when I came round, I was in a bad state, yeah. I knew that I'd at least broken my leg, but, you know, it's when you come, you know, all for me, I just wanted to know that I hadn't broken my neck or broke my back. And I, I still remember to this day, just sort, of, just sort of banging my head on the floor, just to feel if I could, if I could feel that. And then I just started to attempt to stand up uh, and realised I couldn't. So then I just commando crawled to in the direction of my motorbike. My motorbike could have been behind me, but I just crawled in the direction and locate, well, didn't locate my bike because the road was on an embankment. I must have blacked out. And then another motorist dro drove over me. So I was knocked off and then driven over. And that's, that's when they reckon that I sustained, you know, the, the sort of fatal, well, the almost fatal injuries that I, I, I've now got. Jeez. Yeah, so then I was rushed off to hospital and four months later came out. Wow. That was... I mean, for me, with my condition, it's, it's, it's sort of all I know. Um, I was born with it. Yeah. And I sort of class myself as sort of one of the lucky ones because cerebral palsy, there's so many different types of it from people that can't talk, you know, can't, can't feed themselves or whatever. And I, I was told that I wouldn't be able to walk and that my, my right side of my, uh, my eye would be uh, severely deteriorated as I, as I grow older. But obviously, I can walk and I race cars, but that was never my target. But for someone like yourself who had, or who was able-bodied, yeah. that's one life. Yeah. And then being disabled, how has that transition been? For me, because my mum's got a, a form of muscular dystrophy, so I've had disability in my family, and my uncle that lived with my grandparents was an amputee, the irony of it. You know, so I've dealt with disability within my close family, but you, you never, you, you don't come to terms with being thrust into being all of a sudden a disabled person. And society wasn't prepared, and I wasn't prepared. Back in 1989, a disabled person was still institutionalised, you know, and I felt institutionalised when I came out of hospital to go home, and my property wasn't set up for me. You know, my, my, my living room became a bedroom, became a dining room, became a place where family members would come round, would even become a toilet, you know. So it was, it was horrible at that time to be disabled. So what would you say is the most um, common misconception of disability? I just think that, you know, everybody's categorised and we're all put into that wheelchair. You know, and everybody is presumed that it's does he take sugar situation, that they think because you've got a disability that all of a sudden you become a little bit brain dead as well. So for me, that's where I'm quite forceful in putting myself forward and I don't like people over, talking over me. So that's what I feel, it's, it's being categorised that you've all of a sudden lost all your faculties. Yeah, I am... Um... Yeah, my, my, main, my main thing is um, how able-bodied people perceive disability. They don't necessarily know how to deal with it. They don't necessarily know how to ask the most relevant questions to help someone who is disabled. Big thing that really frustrates me is 
like disabled bays and the locations of them. Able-bodied people think that the locations of a disabled bay actually can help a disabled person, but sometimes it could be so far away from actually where you've got to go or where you need to be. They actually end up walking just as far as, as anybody else. And I always get to a point where I feel if, if they had our condition, then they would start to realise that things sort of need to be a bit different in terms of how they perceive certain things that they find helpful. Yeah. Um, Does that get, get you uptight? You know, when you see the, the, those disabled bays being mis, misused? Uh, misused is different. I mean, you know, there's now more people using disabled bays mainly for the elderly, I've realised, because sometimes I walk into a, or drive into a car park and all the disabled bays are taken. And I'm like, geez. And then I go into the shopping centre or wherever it is, and I realise I'm the only disabled person here. I haven't seen anyone in a wheelchair. So, so where are these? Where's, where's all these uh, disabled bays gone? But it's all for, for the elderly. So that's, you know, fair enough. Um, it doesn't necessarily um, frustrate me because I'm in a, in a fortunate position where, where even though I have to park in a normal bay, I can still walk around. But it's just general. Principle. For me, it's not just the instances of obviously disabled parking spaces, it's the embarrassing factor that obviously I'm, an, I'm a wheelchair user and I'm a high amputee as well. So then Nick, <laughs> when did you first come across your sport? <laughs> um, I, was, I was born into my sport, so uh, you know, I was pretty much born at a racetrack. My brother's eight or seven years, seven and a half years older than me. So I would say six months, one years old. I knew it, obviously it was you know, at a race circuit. So that was karting? Karting, yeah, karting days. Um, but obviously I didn't necessarily come around and know about it till I was about three years old. But, uh, you know, I couldn't walk at the time. I had a walking frame um, to help me move on board generally. And so that was pretty much it from the age of, age of three and all the way to now it's pretty much my life. And yourself? I did cricket, but I only did cricket because I was, you know, it was something to do. You know, I never thought I'd make a career out of it. So I, I got onto the board and we started talking about cricket more than I was actually playing. So then I needed to find another hobby. So uh, I went back to a disabled sports club because that's how you found sport those days. You went along to a local disabled sports club that catered for your needs. Not mainstream, a disabled sports club. And I was wandering around this sports club seeing if there's anything there that floated my boat. And it was all mundane table sports, pool, table tennis, indoor bowls, or all, all stuff that I wasn't interested in. And I was just about to leave and I noticed these French doors and I peered through these doors and I'm like, hmm, what's this? And it was archery, you know, and the, t the target was about 10 feet away, but it interested me. And I wasn't gonna go out because I'm quite reserved at something that I'm not good at. So this guy, this gentleman, beckoned me out. So I went out there, he gave me a bow, told me the, the fundamentals that you how to shoot a bow. And I just took to it like a duck takes to water. And me being me, this was on a Saturday. I was at the local archery shop on a Monday buying my own salp. Describe the feeling of your first race slash competition. My first competition, that was uh, in Southport. And once again, you know, I'd changed bow types from recurve to compound because it just suited my needs in my wheelchair. And I went along to this competition not knowing what to expect. It was an indoor competition. So we're shooting a distance of 20 yards. And 
you're setting up, nobody knows you're from Adam, you're there, you're, you're thrust into it. And it was a Portsmouth round, it's, it's 60 arrows at a target 20 yards away and the, the target centre is 60 centimetres. So it's not a big target and I'm competing against all these well-established archers that I know from old now how good they were. And I went along and won it. And I'm like, whoa, what's this? A disabled person going up to, to receive an accolade. And then at Lowenbill, people start taking notice then. And it was a nothing event, but it meant so Your much Your first to event me. was a win. It, yeah, my first event was a win, yeah. <laughs> Amazing, you know. And then obviously you just go on then. I never realised or because it was never on my radar to go to Paralympic Games because my bow tie was never included in the Paralympic Games up until 2008. So bearing in mind I started in 97, so I could only work towards world championships. So that's, that was what was driving me forward then was to become a world champion. For yourself? Mine's a little bit, mine's a little bit different. Um, I, I didn't think I'd ever be able to race a race car. I, uh, I got thrown in the deep end into a championship called the Renault Clio Cup, which is um, one step below like, the pinnacle of British motorsport, British touring cars. It took me four months to get my race license. I'd never turned a wheel on a racetrack before. I had a modified car to help my condition. Obviously, being a Hamilton, my brother was already one-time world champion in 2008. This is now 2011, and I decided I wanted to race cars. My dad gave me the opportunity. I became British champion on simulation gaming in 2009, but that was using... Xbox. Basically, <laughs> uh, on a computer, but that was using buttons on a yeah. steering wheel because I couldn't use my, my legs. Yeah. But yeah, straight into to Renault Clear Cup in 2011. I had the whole world looking at me, 50,000 fans at the side of the, side of the circuit. But also, I had a documentary filming me at that time, which is a fly-on-the-wall documentary of my first season. But I had a ton of, ton of pressure, and I was up against these racers and these drivers um, that had been uh, racing for 10, 15 years. And Lewis Hamilton. And, yeah, of course, um, <laughs> 10, 15 years. They're all able-bodied, and I'm the only disabled guy there. So for me, I was sort of a Paralympian in the Olympics as such. So my first, first race was pretty surreal, but it was a, a good one, a positive step. Um, and it just gave me, gave me the bug to, to keep moving forward, keep pushing forward. And it was my first race, the fact that I was racing, the fact that I'd, I'd overcome my condition from wheelchair bound to, to racing um, and competing with able-bodied people and beating able-bodied people and realizing the amount of people I was starting to inspire, you know, sort of give, gave me a purpose in life. And that's why I work so hard to, to continue racing and eventually, you know, step out of the shadow of my brother a little bit. I'm super proud of him, but also want to make things my own way and uh, do things for myself. Are you jealous of him? No, 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 not in no. the slightest. Not in the slightest. He deserves every, every bit that he's got, and I'm his biggest man. So, John, when was your first time you felt excluded because of your disability? For me, it was when I first came out of hospital. You know, it was living that life as, of a disabled person, going back to your home, and my home had not been adapted to suit my disability. I just went home and even getting over the threshold, you know, it was an impossibility. Being heaved up into the, into the house and then you just feel as though, is this going to be my life now? I'm going to always have these issues to get over. And access and disability rights those days, 
There wasn't any. It's a, just a case that social services would then assist you in no matter which way they could, allowing on their budget, you know, so access was major to me. So for yourself, when did you actually feel as though, you know, you felt excluded? Probably my school days. When I was a kid going into primary school, straight away people would look at you like you're some sort of alien. They didn't understand why you sort of walked the way you did or why your legs were bent or why you'd fall over. And it made me feel super um, vulnerable, super embarrassed. And I remember crying to myself one night thinking, you know, why am I sort of the chosen one to have had this condition and how do I move forward from it? Then, you know, just going through to secondary school, you know, when there was no lifts, there's no ramps, I basically had to, to go through my schooling career as an able-bodied person. Don't get me wrong, I know some of the issues you had going to school because, mm -hmm. you know, obviously I was a parent, mm. so I had a, I had a young child mm. who was going to infant schools mm. and then obviously on to secondary school. Mm. So I do know the situation, mm. so you had to come across. Yeah, school, but also just how, um, you know, kids perceive you. Kids are brutal oh, uh, these days, yeah. especially as well. You know, they don't, um, they don't have a filter no. and they just say it how they feel. So initially it was, it was difficult, um, you know, and then when I took the decision to go into a wheelchair because I was struggling for long distances with heavy bags on my back at school. Initially at primary school I was in, um, I just, I walked because it was a small village school. Did you feel more inferior when you were in a chair? Uh, not really, because it was helping me. So yeah. when I went to secondary school and I was able to, you know, push and being a wheelchair, it was helping me. So it got to a point I, I didn't really care about what people thought of me because it was helping my it life. It was a life choice. So I was ha happy with that. Um, but then obviously I just got, I got bullied and, you know, people pulling me back in my wheelchair, leaving me alone and just like, leaving me on the floor and walking away laughing, all that sort of stuff. And that sort of created my strength, you know, overcoming, you know, the bullying and, and, you know, my school eventually became very sort of compliant with what I wanted and started putting ramps in, made life yeah. a little bit easier. And so I tried to be a little bit cool and I started doing wheelies in my wheelchair and jumping stairs and became basically a Tony Hawk um, yeah. in a wheelchair and made myself feel a bit more natural. And then I got into my motorsport and I wasn't allowed a, a race license because of my condition. And it took me, well, like, you know, four months to, to get my license where it normally takes an everybody person two weeks. So, you know, there's always trials and tribulations mm -hmm. that have sort of put me on the back foot. I felt like I was born into life on the back foot. So I was sort of used to no as an answer most of the time, but it's just sort of built me into who I am today in terms of not taking no for an answer and pushing forward and, and staying true to myself. And so that's probably how yeah. I mainly get over it. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. How does my disability... You'll have to ask my partner. <laughs> How does it affect my love life? I don't think it does, to be honest. I don't allow it to. You know, obviously there's certain limitations to, to what you can and can't do. But I think uh, a good relationship will work around those issues. And you just make it more fun. No, I, I don't allow it to. So I'd like to have more of it. <laughs> but, you know, no. I, I think we have a healthy love life. Yourself? Uh, You're a young lad, so... Yeah, for me, I, I was always nervous about girls and how girls would perceive me or, or see me for my condition. And I always thought to myself, if I never saw it as an issue, hopefully they won't see it as an issue and they'll see past it. When I was then growing up and I was you know, 16, 17, got into girls and, and I'm gonna to be totally open and honest. <clears throat> I, you know, for me, I was like, if I could just um, like, as long as I, uh, lose my virginity once, that's all I sort of cared about at the time. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've had girlfriends and, and got more confident with them and realised, um, you know, that they just see me as, as a, a normal guy, normal character, and got to a point that I got so confident, you know, that now I just want to have a, a normal relationship and uh, girls aren't an issue. For yourself, good. though, you look normal. You know, yeah, when you sign that chair, yeah, for me, though, you... Yeah, but it's the same as when I was driving. Like, I thought I wouldn't be able to have sex when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. I didn't think I would be able to move or have the movement or yeah. have whatever it took, you mm -hmm. know, when you're a kid to, to do that. Yeah. So I never knew what was possible. And so I was super nervous yeah. about sort of relationships as a kid and moving it to the next stage. When you're like... I don't know when you're a kid and you're just holding hands or whatever or kiss on the cheek, that's one thing. But when you're moving things further, um, but yeah, then I realised that it, it made no difference. And yeah, as you, as, as you rightly said, you know, if you're in the right relationship, it works. Um, yeah. You know, and I've, I've been in, in a few different types of relationships with different people. And, yeah. and I'm proud of the fact that what I initially thought would be difficult situation is no longer difficult and happily in my relationship with my girlfriend so you know proud of that one. I'm you know for myself I'm not saying that my disability has never risen its head in a relationship you know I I think it did and I think it was the end for for, for my marriage if you like but I'm not necessarily blaming my disability for mm. my breakup and my marriage that probably has got something to do with my sport also mm. and you know yourself that if you you want to prove something to yourself. Yeah. It's not necessarily your relationship that you're working on. Yeah. It's something that makes you feel whole again. Yeah. And for me, it was my sport. And I probably spent too much time concentrating on my sport than not working on my relationship. Yeah. And that was what cost me my marriage. Yeah. But, you know, I'm fortunate now to be in an established relationship and the fun side of it, I think we live a lot, quite a normal life.
And lastly for me is, is a couple of weeks ago, I had a, um, so I have a lot of able-bodied parents coming to me, being like, oh, my son's got cerebral palsy, or he's disabled, you know, you're, you're, a lot, you're an inspiration. What do you, you know, what do you suggest? And um, the mum asked me, you know, what would he be like being with a girl or having sex with a girl or whatever? And I just, I just pointed to my girlfriend as like, I've got a girlfriend, we're happy together, we do our own thing, you know, and it's absolutely normal. So any issues that you feel that you would have in a relationship because of your disability, I think is irrelevant yeah. and it's not really an issue at all. No. Has a disability ever impacted your mental health? Yeah. Previously, I, um, I said that I had, a, I had a moment where I broke down uh, when I was a kid. Uh, I mean, constantly being looked at on a daily basis, kids staring at you when you were growing up, and, and even now adults, you know, looking you up and down when you're walking, you know, that, help, that hurts you mentally. Um, you know, bullying, all that sort of stuff hurts you mentally. I've got to a point I'm proud of being who I am and proud of my condition and actually grateful of it. From the point of crying and being like, why am I like this? Why am I the chosen one? I'm now grateful that I am the chosen one mm. and that I've uh, been able to still achieve my goals even though it's been difficult. But that's all been down to the way my parents have brought me up, where my parents perceived my disability. And if they hadn't seen it as such a positive step, then I wouldn't be so strong mentally and where I am today. And yourself? I'm not embarrassed to say, but I've had some real torrid times with my mental health. You know, I've suffered with clinical depression. I've tried to commit suicide straight after my accident. I <laughs> didn't succeed, but that was a big red flag to the health uh, NHS that I'd not received the help that I needed. And I always do deal with it. And because I've got, I'm an amputee, so, and I don't choose to wear a prosthetic, I'm always going to look different to everybody else. And why do you choose not to use it? It's just else? so uncomfortable. And because why would you wear a prosthesis if you can't use it? You know, I have issues with this left leg, mm -hmm. so... Can you stand on it? No, I can't weight bear through the knee, you see. So if I was to try and weight bear, I'd need a caliper on this leg, so that would be fixing this leg. And on my right leg, I would need a, an unkneeable a prosthetic. So I'd be walking and then I'd need elbow crutches. And I'd, I just decided, you know, from the onset, if you like, that I was not gonna try and walk because of the fear of stumbling and falling on my son. But going back to my mental health, no, I've, I've been documented that I've suffered with mental health. You know, I'm not embarrassed by it. Unfortunately, it's one of those instances, once you've suffered with clinical depression, it'll raise its head again. And, and it has done numerous times. Every, every, everyone struggles mentally. Yeah. I, I think life is 90% mental, 10% physical. Yeah, that's the same in, in sport. In, in, in absolutely anything. Yeah. If someone says that they don't struggle mentally, they're lying. Yeah. You know, so you should never feel no. embarrassed about and, it. You know, and, and for me and my, 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 my partner, I can remember in, when we started our relationship, and I, I remember saying to Jackie, look, if you can't deal with the way people look at me, and if I see in your eyes that you can't manage, let's just call an end to it, because I can't change who I am. And to be fair to Jackie, you know, it's, it's never raised its head in our relationship. You know, why should it? You know, I am no different to anybody else, just that I choose to use a wheelchair. Describe your living with a disability in one word. Simple. Okay, that's an interesting word. I've learned ways to make life simple 
for me. My parents never helped me when I was a kid to do certain tasks, such as I don't know, getting a bowl of cereal for breakfast. They didn't carry it for me. I had to learn how to carry it. I had to learn what would work, what wouldn't work. You know, to carry in your drink of water and not try not to spill it everywhere. The simple things in life. When I walk, obviously I move a lot. So, you know, the water will spill from side to side, from side to side, to, for carrying knives and all this sort of stuff, being independent. You just sort of learn what works, what doesn't work. And um, what doesn't, for example, what doesn't work in, in carrying a glass of water is not having ice in it. If I put a ton of ice in a glass of water, the water doesn't move, so I can carry it anywhere I want. Yeah. And same with a bowl of cereal. I can't, I can't walk with a bowl of cereal with the milk already in. It'll go everywhere, <laughs> so, so I have to take the dry cereal in its bowl, place it where I want to place it, and then I go and get my milk and pour it in. I'm totally, totally in independent, and I, as I said with my motto of if I you know, need to get over an obstacle or a fence, it doesn't matter whether it's physical or just the smallest amount of things, I'll always find a way. I live completely independently and figured out that my life is actually quite simple. It's all I know. There is difficult parts of it, but that's what comes with it. Yeah. For me, I think the word would be patient. Cool. Uh, and I'll explain why. I think you have to be patient if you've got a disability. You become adaptive as well, but they'll get to that instance where you might come across a problem, like you've just been saying about carrying water and this, that and the other, that for me, same thing, you know, carrying water, any, any liquid is an absolute nightmare. But you, you get to the, I, or I get to the situation where I, I play over scenarios in my head and I try and think about the solution without acting it out. And I know it frustrates the hell out of my partner I overthink things and then, and this is where the patience comes into it. I ask for help and I realise that because John needs help, that doesn't mean that Jackie or my partner or my, my, my family or whoever, that means them having to drop and do things because John needs help. Only, and that's where you become patient. I only ask for help if I, if I exactly. need it, if I actually need it. So, how has accessibility changed in your lifetime? I've been quite fortunate because I can still walk and move, even though I couldn't initially at times. I would always make sure I could get where I needed to go to without potentially asking people or needing certain aids or access, um, you know, such as if I needed to get to the second floor of a building, I don't necessarily need um, an elevator or a lift, I would walk. If it took me an hour to get upstairs, I couldn't really care less as long as I got there. So I wouldn't say accessibility, I've noticed a change in accessibility in terms of, oh, there's more lifts or there's ramps now for wheelchair users or there's, you know, things that make life easier for disabled people, but it hasn't necessarily affected me personally um, because I'm in a fortunate position where I can either choose to use the lift or the access that's now available, or I can just go through my usual motions of overcoming the obstacle that's difficult just to make sure I get there, which I'm sure is probably oh, different, different to you. Different. Oh, massively, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Massively, yeah. For me, it's... Uh, my accident, obviously, was in 89, so this yeah. is way before sort of disability rights came prevalent and stuff like that. I've noticed that 
when I was first injured, if I found a public house or a restaurant, that would be my public house or restaurant that I would go to all the time because I knew that I could access it. You know, if I ever went out of my comfort zone and started to venture out and go to places that I was unaware of, you know, I can remember going to civic buildings and there was no ramp and there was 15 steps to get into the building, no ramp. And I had to get into this building. I actually got out of my wheelchair and bummed up the stairs, you know, and dragged my wheelchair behind me. You know, I had to get in this building. So yeah, I've noticed over the, over the, over the course of time that things are getting better. I wouldn't say that they're perfect, you know, only recently, and I mean, back in July, you know, I'm, I'll freely admit this, you know, I'm a disabled person. You know, I've, I get disability living allowance that's changed over to personal independence payment and stuff like that. I had to go through that, you know, and to go through that, I had to go and be assessed to see if I had a disability and to see whether I'd passed their assessment. The challenge was actually getting into the building. There was nowhere to park, no designated blue badge parking spaces. It was on a busy road, crossing over the road. The curb was 10 inches deep. It was an old, you know, it's an old town. So without having my partner there, I would probably have not been able to get to the assessment. So yeah, it's getting better, but it's not perfect, you know? And I, I honestly thought that when I had my accident with the likes of Christopher Reeve breaking his neck and Superman, lo and behold, breaking his neck, disability all of a sudden got this profile that it needed. And now with, Unfortunately, the guys coming back from the Gulf and all their injuries or whatever, it's, it's as though disability has taken on a bit of a trendy. It's trendy to be disabled, but that's only perceived by the able-bodied. We as disabled people would much rather be walking the street in their shoes than living life in our shoes, I think. I can understand that. Probably the only thing I don't agree with is your last statement. I don't want to be walking as an able-bodied person. But I've, I've been, been there. there. I've been yeah, there, been yeah. There. You know, if it wasn't for my sport, you know, I've been asked this question many, many times. If I could go back to that frightful evening of my accident and take a different route home, would I change to take a different route? And it was probably only until I was successful in 2008. So I'd lived life virtually for, what, 90 to almost 20 years as a disabled person, that I'd say, yeah, let me go back in time and I'll take a different route home. But now, because I'm older in life and I've got do a bit more... Do you, do you find it more of a pain in the ass? Do, 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 do you wake up in the morning and wish you weren't disabled? Yeah, at times, yeah. yeah. But there's, there's the times where you feel like you're glad you are? Have you, felt, have, you, have you learnt more about yourself being disabled than you did being able-bodied? I always... Whenever I go back in my, to my able-bodied life, and I've done it only recently because I've you know, relocated, that you start looking at those photo albums. And I was going through those photo albums of John Stubbs able-bodied, and I've got to admit it, you know, there was a tear in my eye because I don't like life as a disabled person. I wish I was able-bodied. I always, and, I, and it's once again, I feel as though and they do, because I'm a wheelchair user, I feel as though sometimes people look down on you. Yeah, that's, that's going to be natural when you're in a wheelchair. 
What's something people always ask you? What do people always ask me? Do you have to pack, do you have to buy shoes in pairs? Do you have to buy shoes in, in pairs? <laughs> That's what they always yeah, get asked. Yeah, yeah. Okay, firstly for me is are you Lewis Hamilton's brother? Is one thing <laughs> which frustrates the hell out of me. Yeah, I'm sorry I did that as well. <laughs> and are you in pain when you walk? It's probably my. It's you probably, must look. It must look painful to people hmm, when you walk. Which is totally fine. And that's it, really. Not necessarily, you know, bad questions. It's all, you know, usual. If you saw a disabled person, you'd probably ask them that question if you felt close and able to ask. For me, I've always positioned myself where you can ask me absolutely anything. I will, op I will answer it honestly, That's openly, my way, yeah. and I would never take offence to anything people ask me. But no, it's, it's, it's pretty simple. The, the Lewis Hamilton question comes up a lot. <laughs> that has nothing to do with my condition. Um, but yeah, I guess that's uh, it's all part of it. So Nick, why do you want to tell your story? Because uh, I've got so much to tell. I feel like there's a lot of people out there that have um, misinterpreted me. They've almost guessed their way through knowing me, knowing my life, knowing where I've come from. And uh, I sort of want to tell them the truth from, from my heart, from my perspective. They feel that all they see is Lewis Hamilton's brother and he's disabled and that's it. And I'm only sometimes where I am because of him, which is untrue. That's why I'm proud to, to be disabled, proud to be who I am, and almost feel it's my purpose in life to, to be disabled and overcome obstacles and share it with others. Well, you know. It's crazy. It's been great meeting Absolute you. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. As always. Join us next time when we'll be listening to the experiences of two people from different generations as they discuss homelessness and sleeping rough in the UK. When people used to be out drinking, I mean, woke up in the morning, people had you know, weed on us and just stuff like that. Yeah. You just get people yeah. saying, get a job, you know. Uh, it, it wasn't very nice, you know. It, it made me feel further and further away from kind of society when I, I really wanted to transition back into society um, because for so much of my life I'd felt not part of it and then kind of coming across i mean there were some nice people as well but yeah there, there was times where i got into fights and stuff when people were drunk and, and they were out in birmingham and um they just didn't see past the fact that i was i had a sleeping bag and i was homeless they didn't see that i had feelings from lad bible you've been listening to the gap our thanks this week go to nick and john for talking so openly about their stories if you're enjoying The Gap, you can rate the podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, make sure you're subscribed wherever you like to listen, so you never miss an episode. <laughs>